Bitcoin, crypto bubbles, passive indexation. There's a lot of financial jargon out there. Old Mutual can help you make sense of it all and give you great advice to make the right decisions. If you've got a question or want to know how to get the most out of your money, call them on 0860 60 60 60 or speak to an old mutual financial advisor or your broker. Today's the day. Get great financial advice so you can do great things. Old Mutual is a licensed financial services provider. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702, your number one news and talk station. Good evening. Welcome to The Money Show. It's brought to you by Old Mutual, investing with Africa for Africa, listing at the Johannesburg Stock Exchange on the 26th of June. Old Mutual, do great things. Welcome to The Money Show this evening. Yeah, we're talking about NHI and lots of detail this evening. Lots of people wanting to have their five cents worth on this. Unfortunately, it's going to cost you a lot more than five cents. Our current account deficit, that came in much bigger than expected, and that was part of the reason why the RAND, which had that little recovery yesterday, went back on the back foot. We've also got a new report on executive pay. It's done by the guys at Corkello Consulting, and they're very good at this stuff. They go through all of the annual reports, and they check out all of the detail in these annual reports, and they've come out with the report. And if I've read it correctly... Chief executives' wage increases on average were lower last year than ordinary workers. Could that be possible? We'll talk to Lawrence Grubb, the managing director at Corkella, coming up later on on The Money Show. Plus tonight, uh, we will talk to Pavlofatidis. He went on his big American road trip. You know that because he keeps talking about it. He's a bit like an MBA graduate. And then uh, we've got Peter Carlett standing in for the very the extended holidaying Warren Ingram. Uh, Peter Carlett's tonight. It's all on this market volatility, the madness that surrounds us permanently, and how you should not let it get you down. All of that tonight is coming up on The Money Show. The Money Show on 702. Your number one news and talk station. Also tonight, I'll introduce you to our new Solutionist Thinking podcast. But first, I must ask you our fast fact question this evening. And that fast fact question is, what is the payoff line for Intel, you know, the microchip maker Intel, what is its payoff line? 31702 31567. Give us a shout on the money show if you know the payoff line of Intel. 702 and Cape Talk. The money show. Well, on the day that the health minister released plans for NHI, details of a special investigating unit report into significant corruption with Gauteng Health Department have come to the fore. The report been shelved, but Section 27, the Treatment Action Campaign and Corruption Watch, have made public this 122-page report which shows a billion rand scandal featuring corruption and financial mismanagement. It all happened several years ago, but still, it's there, and it comes on at a time where the public health sector is crumbling. By government's own admission, the health sector is crumbling. And a draft laws aimed at improving healthcare being published today. But here's the rub. You're going to have to pay for it and pay quite significantly for it. Just how much? We don't know. Well, there's quite a lot of detail that just isn't there yet. But what uh, the health minister, Aaron Mutsoledi, is trying to do is establish a mandatory national health insurance system. So, yes, you have to pay to it. And it will provide cover to all citizens, even those who don't pay for it, which is great if you trust the process, of course. Damien McHugh is the head of marketing at Momentum Health on the line to us from Johannesburg. Big issues for you in the new laws and the proposals, Damien? I think... 
it, it's an issue for all of South Africans. We, we want a, a healthcare system that is able to cover all of us. Um, you know, we don't want a, a public system or a private system that that, that is broken. And, and to be honest, we need legislation in both that that's going to that's going to correct some of the imbalances that we've had. So I think the legislation itself, or the outcome of the legislation of a universal healthcare system, is is, is very very good. Um, but like you say, the process to get there is is something which still has to be debated at. At, at some length. Well, come on, we've been doing this since 2009. Doesn't today's legislation address the uh, the issues that have been raised over nearly 10 years? Um, you know, it, it just seems like we, we end up talking about it and talking about it and not doing anything about it. Bruce, actually, to be honest, we've been doing it since 1960, actually, is when, okay. when we started talking <laughs> about a healthcare system like this in, in a South African conflict. I think, yes, you're right. Uh, the, I, I think where we're getting to is we're getting to something which is which is more realistic, um, going forward you know when we started in 2009 as you say and in fact in 1998 already when you know when the first medical schemes that came, came about we started to move towards towards a, a, a universal healthcare system and in fact we didn't start there we started with a social health system and so on so i think we're getting closer and closer to to what the outcome will be um we still got lots of lots of way to go even with the with the current proposals that were that you know were announced by the minister today there's, there's still a lot that has to be has to be got, you know, done and got to go to public debate and so on. So I think there's still a lot of water to go before we get something that's, that's finalised, but um, I think it steps in the right direction. Steps in the right direction. Are these practical steps? Are these steps that are going to break already overburdened South African taxpayers' bank balances even further? I think it's difficult to actually comment on whether that will happen or not, Bruce, at this point, but it is possible. It is possible that some of we, have, we do have some unintended consequences through... Um, you know, through the changes, both in the private sector and within the public sector. And I think that's the one thing that, that I just want to focus on. It doesn't have to be one or the other. We can have an end here. We, we really can have a system that works both private and public working together for the better outcome. And I think that's really what we, that, you know, what we've been working on with, with, you know, with government and regulation behind, behind the scenes to, to try and get the working of both of those together. Yes, there will be more cost. That is true. You know, if you're on a private medical scheme now, you might also be paying a tax to, you know, that goes towards a, a national healthcare system. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, you know, it does mean then that our public systems can have greater quality, which I think the, the minister spent some time talking about, you know, today. Not necessarily a bad thing, says Damien McHugh. Thank you, the head of marketing at Momentum Health. It is a bad thing, Damien, if people start cancelling their private medical aid simply because they can't afford the double dip into this. Dr. Guni Gulab is the principal officer of the Government Employees Medical Scheme. Of course, government employees get the benefit of being part of, of a medical scheme here, Dr. Gulab. Give me your sense, please, as to how this is going to affect your members. So, good evening, Bruce, and thank you for the opportunity to... Uh, comment on uh, what is a very important and historic uh, direction that our country is undertaking. Um, you know, firstly, uh, as your previous speaker indicated, uh, the NHR white paper uh, became government policy a year ago, and we're now seeing the first step towards um, the legislative framework that will underpin the change. So uh, the minister today announced uh, the publication of two bills, the, the National Health Insurance Bill, but simultaneously the amendment to the Medical Scheme Act. And specifically for GEMS members, the first thing in all other Medical Scheme members is that the fact that we still have now a Medical Schemes Amendment Bill implies that uh, there's a role for Medical Schemes going forward. So I think that's the first reassurance that we would provide. The second thing is that um, the direction for NHI requires substantial changes to both the public sector and the private sector. 
and specifically within the private sector or the medical scheme environment, uh, the trajectory on the contribution increases for members have been unsustainable. And Bruce, that's the reason why we've had the health market inquiry, which we're anticipating the outcome of it at the end of this month. Uh, and a number of the changes in the medical schemes amendment bill talk directly to many of the concerns that GEMS members have and all other medical scheme members have. For example, the issue of co-payments, the issue of prescribed minimum benefits that uh, are driving the trajectory in the wrong direction, and too many benefit options that are too difficult for members to understand. Okay, so, so that, if, yeah, I, if I, if I do so, a really simplistic analysis of this, I mean, here, what Aaron Mutzelet is trying to achieve is to make medical aid cheaper, and then he's going to want those medical aid members to also help subsidize a public health system, which they should have some more money in their pockets to enable them to do uh, in order to try and achieve universal health care. I mean, is that, it's in simplest possible terms, the idea? Yeah, so Bruce, uh, maybe uh, reinforcing what you're saying, but in a more uh, uh, broader context, is that we have sufficient money as a country from a GDP point of view that we spend on health care as a country. In fact, we're better than other countries from an average point of view. We have 87 uh, and that's well above some of uh, comparable countries. However, what we have is a private sector that is uh, spending a huge amount of money on a small number of people, so it's inefficient from that point of view. And the public sector is under-resourced in terms of uh, facilities and healthcare professionals, so it's seeking to find a better balance between the two. And yet, so both sides need reform moving towards eventually over a number of years in a phased way towards a more single system over time. Dr. Guni Gulab, thank you. Principal Officer of the Government Employees Medical Scheme. A lot of you, his hearts would have skipped a beat and uh, you would be wanting to call into your GP's office on the way home hearing that because, hold on a second here, you've got an inefficient and over-resourced private healthcare sector and government wants to equalise. Now, that's going to scare a lot of people. Neil Kirby is the Head of Healthcare and Life Sciences Lord Worksman's Attorneys. If I translate what Guni Gulab has just said, Neil Kirby, it means we want to equalise healthcare rather than raise the standard to the standard of the private system, we got to reduce the standards in the private system in order to raise the standards of the public system. Many people in the private system will take offence to that. I think that's correct. The, the difficulty, I think, is uh, around the meaning of the word equalise. Uh, that was used today during the Minister's briefing, and I understood that the emphasis there was not so much on standards, but on how you achieve access to that system by people who are disenfranchised as a result of the costs of the system. And th that seems to be where the emphasis lies. Now, the Minister was also quite careful to, to, to describe how, in fact, we will address deficiencies in the public sector through the Office of Health Standards Compliance and the Health Ombudsperson, um, and also uh, stated that, well, you know, it's not going to be an overnight fix, and quite frankly, deficiencies in the, in the public health care sector will always need to be addressed. There will always, there will always be something that we have to look at from, from that perspective. Mm. So. So don't worry about, about standards. Um, at this point in time, the emphasis is on getting the requisite health care to the requisite patients.
I mean, we already spent 8.7% of GDP on public health care um, by, by, by private individuals who can afford it funding their own health care through this inefficient and very expensive private system. We take pressure then off the public health care system. Taxpayers already pay for the public health care system, but there's an assertion from Arun Wotsaledi today that the rich are going to have to subsidize the poor even further in this particular case. Um, it, it strikes me that we're head for, headed for a, a really big and messy fight over this. Well, I think that the potential for a fight is there. I think that you know, what you're doing is you, you, you are attacking an existing system. Maybe attacking is the, is the wrong word, but you are now trying to address an existing system to, to align it with a, with a government policy concerning access to healthcare services. Uh, it's a bit like unscrambling the egg at this point in time because the initial amendments to the Medical Schemes Act were all dressed up as the way and means to address the access, access to healthcare services. Yes, I accept the point that the fact that we have an amendment to the Medical Schemes Act means there'll be a role for medical schemes into the future. But that, not, the, the, that is not as much comfort when one looks at what that role might have to be. And how many medical schemes might be able to fulfill that role is another question that one has to ask. Because, as you say, I mean, if I'm paying for both my National Health Insurance Fund and my medical scheme, um, I might not be too inclined to want to keep the medical scheme benefit, as that, as that is the voluntary side of my decision in terms of how I spend my money. It all depends on how much of a good job the health department can do in improving the public health care system. And there may be lots of people who will be forced into the public health care system, which will then put additional pressure on that public health care system because they won't afford to be able to pay for both. And that's the, 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 the very real risk here. I think that that is true. I think that the, what, 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 ironically, this does do is it shines more particularly a lot on what is happening in the public sector. We've, we've had... Uh, hearings through the life is a domaini process. We understand what in fact went wrong there. We understand the, the, the concerns that were raised initially as the justification for those, those decisions were money-based. We've, we've had statements by the Health Ombudsman's Office about the state of, of public health facilities. Now, I'm sure that if we run this process, we have to, we have to be uh, comforted that at some point public facilities are going to be able to deal with the most basic problems, uh, staffing, uh, labor unrest, mm. matters concerning how you get access to a public hospital, where they are, how many there are. Uh, those, those types of questions are now going to have to be asked. And in addition, they are going to have to be answered because without proper answers to those questions, this is just paper. Uh, there is one thing we will agree with the minister on, though, that, yes, there has to be a wholesale reform of the healthcare industry in South Africa. There's no question about it. It's just how you choose to slice and dice it as to whether or not your, your reforms do more harm than good. I think that that's also correct. Reform, reform is, is um, a, a, tough, a tough cycle, and it does produce um, some rather interesting effects. Um, I'm of the view that we're at the outset of this process. Um, I think there's still much to happen uh, in terms of what these particular pieces of legislation will look like when they become acts as opposed to what we're dealing with now in the debate as bills. And thanks to you, Neil Kirby, the head of healthcare and life sciences law at Worksman's Attorneys. The contentious issue of healthcare reform in South Africa, desperately necessary, at a huge cost already 
inefficiently and badly run and badly managed. All of these issues have to be dealt with. Mazima Shalowa was interesting today on social media saying I'm a supporter of NHI and has been for many years, long before the ANC brought, uh, was brought in, bought into it. I still do and am against its introduction at the moment with the health system on its knees. It's a recipe for disaster and will reinforce views of those opposed to it. We must sort out the mess. That, in a nutshell, is the issue. The Money Show. The Markets. Graham Kona with the Kona Perspective this evening. I must just uh, once again ask you to send me, please, because it's very funny. Um, the payoff line for Intel. 31702-31567. The payoff line for Intel. SMS that to me now, and then I'll tell you why I ask the question. Graham Kona, you look sad bedraggled as if somebody took away the ball and you were just wanting to start playing the soccer game. And, and, and you've got a piece of paper in front of you with a whole bunch of red writing on it, which covers global markets, it covers South Africa. What a shambles. Yeah, Bruce, sometimes I've described the market, um, you know, as the Rottweiler and, and we're the soft toy in its mouth. And, and the last few days have, have felt like that. Largely brought on, I think, as a lot of your guests this week have, have said, by, by sort of Trumponomics and Wilbur Ross. But, you know, Bruce, quite often when you look at markets and you say, well, we started the year, I think, at about 58 or thereabouts, we're 56. It doesn't sound that bad. But if you look over the last three months, if I could just quote a few numbers, and I know they don't do well on radio, the banking index in South Africa is down almost 16%. Financials, obviously, in suit, 13%. South African listed property is down 9 the South African shareholder weighted index is down six. That's on a three-month view. It's, it's awful. The amazing thing is that when the RAND is down 20%, as we've seen over the last couple of months, you would have expected things like Naspers and Richmond and Anglos to kick into gear, and it hasn't happened. It, it's, it's, a, it's a really not a nice market to be playing. But is that because the markets in which these companies, the Richmonds, the Anglos and the Naspers, those markets in which they operate are coming under a huge amount of pressure as well? Naspers, Chinese, it's listed yep. in Hong Kong, but it's yep. a Chinese business. Um, the Chinese stock exchange is down, what, probably in double digits too, surely? Yeah. Yeah, on a three-month view, it's also down, um, I think, 10 or 11%. Um, a lot of European markets are, are weak. So exactly to your point, world markets are not a happy place. And I think we've been saying for a while that when when monetary policy normalizes, it, it's going to have an effect on asset prices. And we were never quite sure how much. But add to that mix is the fact that, you know, Trump is just throwing more at us. And if I can just say, I think at, at any point in time, you know, as people in the markets, we're not very bright. So we can only really focus on one, maybe two things at a time. And right now we're having to deal with trade wars in South Korea and, and, and uh, you know, the scaling back of quantitative easing and, and, and rising interest rates. And there's just too much and we can't deal with it, frankly. <laughs> Thank you for that admission, by the way. Um, Mark Lamberti, when uh, he was at Imperial, uh, devised the scheme to add value to Imperial, and that was to split the company down the middle, to take the Motus business, which is the the motor retail business, yep. and put it into its own listed entity, and then yep. to put the rest of the business, the logistics operation, into a separately listed company. That's been the plan for the last year or so. Yep. The formal announcement of that today. Does it look good? Yeah, I think so. And I think if you look over a year, um, like a lot of shit, maybe look looks better than, than maybe the last three months. But I think Mark put the, the, the business on the right track, uh, did quite a lot of corporate finance work, um, you know, not just selling, but also a, a couple of acquisitions. But I think this is a, it's a, it's a sensible 
strategy, Bruce, because, you know, if you if you like the motor vehicle industry, so if you like the combined motor holdings of the world, for example, you can now go and buy motors. If you like logistics and you want a pure logistics play, you go and buy Imperial Logistics. So I think it's a it's a smart strategy. But often you sort of think back at, on Anglo-American 30 years ago when they had Anglo-American Industrial Corporation and had all those other bits and pieces. And quite often it's good to have these conglomerates because when one industry is battling, then you, mm. you've got another one to offset. I must ask you very quickly, Breit, were you surprised by the big bounce we have seen in the share price of Breit? It's had three days of mm. um, sort of five, six, seven percent increases. I think it's it, it's probably to be expected. When they give you the, the NAV of 57 Rand, then clearly when it's trading, you know, at 40, it looks uh, a little bit too cheap. So I think that's the, the context. And also, um, I think as Wayne, uh, it was Wayne McCurry who was saying the other night that, uh, if there's no more pain to be taken in new look, then, yeah, there's some decent businesses there. Wayne, uh, Wayne McCurry was on the radio last night, of course. Graham Kerner, thank you very much indeed. Graham Kerner with the Kerner Perspective. Graham, what is Intel's payoff line? A little blue swoosh. Yeah. It's got two words in it. Intel, inside. Yes. Yes, everybody got it right, um, except you. Um, but then you... But we've established I'm different, uh, so... <laughs> No comment. The firm announcing today that its uh, chief executive, a guy called Brian Krasnich, is stepping down in with immediate effect because of a violation of Intel's non-fraternization policy. What was he doing? Well, yes, he was having a consensual relationship with an Intel employee against company rules. It does seem that he took the payoff line quite literally. The Money Show on 702. Your number one news and talk station. The Solution is Thinking podcast series brought to you by RMB. And lots of you, when I meet you, think I waltz into the studio at 6 o'clock in the evening. I get handed a script, wittily written, charmingly constructed and wonderfully set up. And much of that is true. Uh, but I, you think I have a, yeah, a couple of chats with some mostly interesting people and then go back to my tanning bed or wherever you think it is that I spend my time uh, for the rest of the day. And I often get, get, get asked the question, so what do you do the rest of the time? What do you do with the rest of your day? Well, it's very busy, you know. Other than prepare the show, it turns out I do quite a lot. And one of my current projects is really fun. It's an insightful podcast series called Solutionist Thinking with RMB. Um, and it addresses one of my big bugbears every day. Everyone sees problems around them. The vast majority of people I encounter get, get quite defeatist about the world in which they live. And that's why this podcast series is so important, because I'm going to spend the next 13 weeks getting some really incredible people to, think, to tell you how they think differently about the world and its problems. They don't ignore the problems, but they set about solving the problems. There's a story about a guy who's dedicated his life to running businesses and cultivating new generations of business leaders against all odds. He writes and he thinks deeply about the way business businesses are run, but also how the country is run and how they interrelate the country and the companies that operate in that country. That's Ruel Causa, the author, the farmer, the, the music producer, and of course, the businessman. What about the guy who got fed up with high data prices? Did he sit there and whinge or did he get together with a couple of well-placed friends with some money and create a disruptive force? Or the comedian who's a deeply serious soul who can teach anyone in business how to make anyone pay attention to what they're actually saying, or the woman daunted by the unemployment crisis in South Africa and how she's thinking so differently about how to address it that she might just actually win the day on this one, or the woman looking at education, knowing it can be done better. There are just so many great stories, including a guy who spends half his day with his elbows smeared in other people's bodily fluids, yet 
in a moment, he has to make a life or death call. He's a true solutionist thinker. We, that's what we're doing for the next 13 weeks. People who are different from the rest of us, remarkable individuals. What makes them tick? Why are they wired the way they're wired? You can get the podcast from our 702 or Cape Talk websites under the features column or under the podcasts on the station. Now, here's a taste of episode one, a solutionist thinker like few others, Dr. Ruel Kosa, about just how precarious the situation in South Africa became last year. Unfortunately, destructive forces don't die overnight. There are those who benefited from uh, cronyism. There are those who benefited from corruption. There are those who benefited from looting. Uh, we were almost on the verge of kleptocracy, which is government by thieving. It was so pervasive. In fact, we were, I think we were perhaps just one or two steps um, before kleptocracy. Uh, so we were saved by if you like what happened at Nazarek last year, uh, had we gone the other way, God forbid, I believe uh, we would be in the gutters. Um, given what is happening now under the Cyril Ramaphosa presidency, I want to believe that there is hope. Nations uh, have gone through uh, bad times and, and, and um, uh, good times, hence the concepts of a renaissance. Uh, Cyril talks about a new dawn. A new dawn is nothing but um, a renaissance of some description. So I want to believe that uh, there's a great deal that we can contribute as he provides that requisite thrust. We as a, the rest of the nation must be aligned uh, behind that thrust and be dedicated to, to building. And for that reason, I am hopeful that we will actually pull ourselves um, out of the gutters uh, by our own boots, straps, because uh, as a nation, I believe we do have boots and straps. An incredible guy, Dr. Royal Cause. If you know nothing about him, please listen to the podcast. Even if you think you know everything there is to know about Royal Cause, one of South Africa's foremost thinkers in business, and he is certainly a solutionist thinker. The Solutionist Thinking Podcast Series brought to you by RMB. To download the full podcast, go to 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. Or if you're too, if it's too complicated for you and you follow me on Twitter, I've tweeted a link to the first of the 13 part series of Solutionist Thinking with RMB. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual. Investing with Africa for Africa. Listing on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange on 26 June. Old Mutual. Do great things. Do you ever look at that piece of art on your granny's wall and wonder to yourself, I wonder if it's worth anything? It's just a picture of a grumpy old man, and it's, but it's got a nice brush stroke to it, and you think, boy, maybe it's worth something. Well, one of those has been found in South Africa. It's a Rubens, one of the old masters, Peter Paul Rubens. It's been found in South Africa, apparently worth about 8 million rand, and it's hanging at Killarney Country Club at the moment, a piece that's been in the same family since the 1930s, and they had a letter, uh, and it is, they, they call it the funny old man picture. And they said, well, yeah, the letter says it might just be a Rubens, but they didn't really take it too seriously. But Luke Crossley, who is fine art specialist at Seffenveltz and Company, you verified that the funny old man is actually a Rubens, Peter Paul Rubens, the old master. Yes, hello, Bruce. Um, it was quite a surprising thing to actually encounter. So for us to suddenly be confronted with the possibility of an old master hanging on the walls of Johannesburg was quite a moment. Um, and from there, the research really had to kick off in terms of being able to justify this as a Rubens. 
So it's been quite an adventure. Like, tell me, take me through the adventure. I mean, you've got to trace the provenance of the painting. You've got to, Absolutely. I suppose, carbon date the paint, and you've got to look at the telltale signals that indicate to you that this is a grand master and not just a clever forgery, because we know there are lots of forgeries of the grand masters dotted around the globe. No, absolutely. You have to be very, very careful. So for us, it was a process of beginning the research with the current owners and working backwards in time, tracing it through documents, letters, articles, various mentions through auction histories, uh, trying to trace the movement of the work through Europe before it eventually came to South Africa, uh, because it has had quite a storied history, having been having being 400 years old at least. Um, the suggestions are that it was painted sometime between 1598 and 1609. So from there, it was a case of trying to work out who has owned it, when did they own it, where did it go from there. Um, and I've, I've had a lot of assist, assistance through this process, and I'm very grateful for all the collaborators who've been able to assist us with this. Well, the way it came to South Africa is absolutely fascinating. I mean, a Jewish immigrant, 1925, a pediatrician, comes to South Africa. He's got two paintings. The one he sells, the one he keeps. The one he sells yes. sets him up, and the one he keeps is then handed down through his family. Absolutely, and it's, it's, we're very lucky to that he did actually hang on to it and that it, we're able to experience the painting now. Um, because, as I said, uh, you don't often encounter an old master just uh, hanging in Johannesburg. Um, we're much more used to all the big names of South African art. But uh, Rubens is uh, something else completely. Well, were you a bit like Harrison Ford and what was the movie? <laughs> um, Raiders of the Lost Ark. When you suddenly, you held this painting in your hands and you had a feeling, you had a feeling yeah. which you had to verify. That moment, you became aware of the fact that this was the real article. Once you actually start, because of course, you're going to be filled with a little bit of doubt. But once you've actually been able to justify it. You've got all of the names, you've got the testimonies, you've got the evidence, you've got the records. It really is a wonderful moment and you start to realize that all the time and the effort and the hard work has really been worth it. And even all of that work and that research is very rewarding in itself. And, you know, it's been a great privilege to be involved in this process. Now, this painting is hanging at Kalani uh, Golf Club. Um, is it on public yes. display there? Can people go and have a look at it? Yes, people are very welcome to come and view the work. Um, we're happy to talk about it and the opportunity to get right up close to a painting like this and spend some time examining the technique, seeing the artist's understanding of light and shade, of form. It's, it's really a great opportunity. So we do encourage people to come and view the artwork. Is it for sale? I mean, you are auctioneers after all. Is it going to be auctioned here or taken elsewhere? What we are doing, it is for sale, but what it, what we're, the process we're doing is called sealed commission bids, which is essentially taking an auction and stretching it out over a few days so that you, you can relieve some of the, the pressure of a live auction where you maybe only have a few minutes to sell the work. And particularly with a work like this, you want to give everyone, both locally and internationally, the chance to see the work, ask the questions, maybe do a little bit of research of their own. And yeah, we're accepting bids as we go. Guide price, I see about 8 million rand. I mean, there have been lots of Rubens sold in recent years. Um, you know, there was a Rubens in 2002, The Massacre of the Innocents for 76 million. Princess Diana's family sold uh, a commander being armed uh, for battle for 13 million. This one's not as complex as those. It's simply a portrait of an old man. Um, yeah. You expect it to get around eight? 
Uh, we'd always like it to go higher. Of course. Um, what, <laughs> what we have done is it was very important to do market-related research in terms of the auction history of Rubens' works over the last 10, 20 years, um, taking into account size, subject, material, provenance, any kind of literature, exhibitions, all of these things begin to feed into how you arrive at an accurate value. Because there has been suggestions that maybe it's cheap. But once you start looking at Rubens' body of work and you start looking at the type of works that have been sold, the background to them, where they've come from, where they've been, all of those stories, they have an, an element in determining the value. So this is how we arrived at our current auction estimates. Luke Crossley, thank you very much indeed. What a lovely adventure through the world of art over a period of 400 years. Told to you in five minutes. Uh, fine art specialist at Stefan Belson Company, Luke Crossley, this evening on identifying one of the old masters hanging on a wall in a house in Joburg. The Money Show, FAQs. So FAQ today, inspired by a story in the news that South Africa's current account deficit has widened to 4.8% of GDP. That's a big spike. It shouldn't have been anywhere near that number. Uh, your question is, what is the current account deficit? It's a current account that's in deficit. Dr. Azar Jameen, Chief Economist at Econometrics, a better explanation than that, please. <laughs> yeah, good evening, uh, Bruce. It's really, we're talking about uh, the difference between what the country imports and what it exports in goods and services. Now, you can split the current account into two parts, the goods and the services. With goods, you look at what the products that are sold, uh, exported, versus the products that are imported. And that includes both mineral products and uh, on the one hand and manufactured goods on the other hand. And then on the other side, you've got services, and that includes invisible things such as banking, uh, licensing agreements, shipping costs, transport costs, travel costs, uh, and very importantly in South Africa's case, interest and dividend earned by South Africans from abroad, from investments abroad versus what they pay, what South African companies pay out to overseas investors in interest and dividends. And the combination of all those factors gives you the current account. Now, the current account deficit means that there's more money going out than coming in. Correct. And that's a bad thing, right? Uh, well, uh, it, it's a bad thing if you can't uh, find a way of financing that because you basically need foreign exchange. And at the moment, we're needing 220 billion rand per annum worth of foreign exchange. Otherwise, you have to have an adjustment. And the fact that... Uh, some of those inflows that make up for that uh, 220 billion rand uh, fell short during the first quarter resulted in uh, our currency getting a lot of downward pressure. And that's the adjustment process that we uh, need because the lower the rand, the more we get for, ran more rands we get for our exports and our imports become 
more expensive and therefore we're uh, dissuaded from importing as much as we did before. And in that way, hopefully, you get the balance between imports and exports uh, reducing. So the currency is the method of adjustment. There was, uh, there but, was, uh, sorry, there, there was a time we were running surpluses, Asaj. Did we ever go back there? Well, we did run surpluses, even uh, um, current account surpluses, not that often. Uh, we were forced to do so during the apartheid era uh, because uh, we couldn't borrow money from abroad to make up for that. In, uh, in the current situation, we can borrow money from abroad. And in fact, what's been happening on a continuous basis, uh, certainly in the first three months of the year that helped enormously, was because of Ramaphoria foreigners were willing to buy our government bonds and that uh, resulted in big inflows not related to trade but related to uh, foreigners wanting to uh, invest in uh, to embark upon portfolio investments in the country and that's why confidence is important dr zajmin chief economist at econometrics thank you for answering the question now you know what the current account deficit is the money show with bruce whitfield on 702, your number one news and talk station. Lovely tale and a story in uh, Eyewitness News at 7 o'clock this evening. If UB40 thought they had a problem when they had rats in the kitchen. But rats in the bank vault, imagine that. And we're going to the bank manager and saying, it's the ultimate dog-ate-my-homework dog story. Terribly sorry, bank manager, but I tried to draw money out of the ATM and the rats ate the cash. Nobody would believe you for a while, but 250,000 rats worth of cash. Can you insure against that? I wonder if you're in the banking sector, if the rats eat the cash, is there a provision for that active rat? I wonder. Uh, the, the Money Show brought to you by Old Mutual, investing with Africa for Africa, listing at the Johannesburg Stock Exchange on the 26th of June. Old Mutual, do great things. Well, a good story on Bloomberg today, all about the way in which Christopher Visa kept his top manager's suite. Um, and in 2011, says this piece from Bloomberg, written by Janice Q. Two companies linked to Christo Visa offered top managers an option to buy shares in the businesses they were running. Plenty of companies do that, but do not necessarily with this additional sweetener. The executives in question received bank loans to buy the stock, loans that were guaranteed by the company in the event they couldn't be repaid. And this is the discussion that we had with the chief executive of Steinhoff Africa Retail the other day, saying that the 400 million rand in uh, additional money that they had raised was there to guarantee the loans of the executives. You've got to keep the executive suite. They 440 million rand to pay back the loans of 44 PEPCOR managers, many of whom bought um, the stakes in the company. Um, and, uh, and, and when the wheels came off, well, now shareholders are going to have to pay for that. And you know, it's going to upset a lot of people. It's going to make a lot of people really cross. Lawrence Grubb, the Managing Director of Coquello Consulting, I know um, that that's not what we're going to talk about this evening, but it's an interesting position for uh, shareholders to be in. And if you're not going to read the small print in the director's remuneration, then companies can sneak that sort of stuff into the annual report because they're legally obliged to do it um, and can get away with it. Um, yes, Bruce, there are, good evening to you and your listeners, there are, you know, companies that might try and sneak that in, but I think the, the trend generally is towards trying to improve, improve disclosure and make it more transparent um, in line with King 4. So I think those sort of practices are, as you said, I think that was done in 2011. Um, it's not to say that it isn't being done anymore, but certainly there are risks to doing that in the sense that you will most likely end up having to disclose that at some stage.
Well, yeah, and for 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 directors of uh, these uh, visa connected companies, it could very well too too little, too late. Now, tell me about the executive pay issues twenty eighteen. What are the main trends that you've picked up? You've been doing executive pay research for the last nearly ten years, I think. Um, what are the big trends in twenty eighteen? I think what's been interesting, Bruce, is the decline in the annual incentives that have been paid out and the number of people receiving them at CEO level. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's dropped from in 2011, um, a high of sort of 78% down to now about 64% um, that are actually receiving SBI payments or okay. annual incentives. Is that because companies are underperforming and uh, the boards that set the the, the, the the benchmarks that the CEOs had to achieve is simply saying, terribly sorry, you haven't passed the line, you don't get your prize? Correct. And I think the disclosure that's required now through King 4 and the single figure uh, reporting is making it you know, less easy for companies to, to sort of be, be flexed and bent by executives or other reasons to paying out incentives if they haven't been properly uh, you know, warranted. And obviously up front now you need to disclose your performance criteria and the levels that are required for various incentives to be paid. And then post that, you have to explain why you didn't pay that, you know, what was due. Or if you paid more, you've got to explain that as well. So it's becoming very difficult for companies to or Remco's to approve anything other than what, you know, was meant to be paid. I mean, you talk about executives bullying their way into getting bonuses and then to getting, the, uh, to getting payments where they might, might not be due. Is that sort of stuff common? We would expect boards to be quite strong on this. Boards are strong in it, but I think there is always a you know a tension between the two because obviously you've you've got executives who typically do want more money, like most people do, um, and then you've got the Remco and the board who are trying to keep a balance to that and also at the same time make sure that the executives are motivated and, and appropriately rewarded. So there is that tension all the time that goes on in the debate at remuneration committees and board level. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's, it's a, unfortunately, yes, sometimes you can end up with a CEO or an executive who's very sort of uh, almost single-handedly runs the company. Um, and that can then put a lot of extreme pressure on, on the remuneration committee because they, they can be very scared of losing that one CEO or upsetting him. <laughs> no, but, I mean, and it sounds like this is playground stuff, but these are very real debates and arguments that have happened in boardrooms. You know I'm great. The environment turned against me. It's not my fault that we underperformed, actually, and they can maybe justify and quantify why they didn't reach the benchmarks. And the board may be tempted to, to give them a pass and give them part of the remuneration, but that's not what the deal says, and boards have got to stick to those deals. And yes, and I think that's where you know this disclosure requirement is 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 going to support boards and remuneration committees a lot more because upfront you need to disclose what the criteria are and what the performance levels are and what remuneration you get for those levels, and then post that you have to report. And I think another interesting thing that that is coming along is the disclosure of long-term incentives because. In the past, in your annual reports and your integrated reports, it was relatively easy for companies to spread the remuneration uh, in different sections of the report. Have we still got you, Lawrence Grubb? Sorry, you, you vanished there yeah. for a moment. Um, was, I, was I correct in reading your report in which you said that um, 
CEO increases, in fact, lower than increases of ordinary workers in companies for the first time in ages. It seems too good to be true. <laughs> that is true on the guaranteed basis. Ah, okay, Ooh. right. There, there's, there's the catch. Because you, you say to me your guaranteed remuneration is only going to go up by 5% so that we can convince the workers that their 6% deal is a good deal. I go nudge, nudge, wink, wink. And by yeah. the way, I'd like some cheaper shares, please, or I'd like a better performance <laughs> bonus. Uh, yeah, I think it's it's not quite as easy as that. But obviously, um, what what is uh, positive, I think, is that the pressure is on executive guaranteed pay to try and curb the increases, and that that is something that we've seen uh, in a number of remuneration committees where executives are receiving less in percentage increases than the um, junior uh, empl- you know employees, and that I think is positive. Obviously. A 5% increase on a few million is a lot more than an 8% increase or 10% increase on a few thousand or 100,000. But I think, um, you know, the, 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 what's interesting, Bruce, is the single figure that King 4 is asking for um, to be disclosed. And that's where in, in the remuneration report, you have to have for each uh, executive what the salary was, what the benefits were, what any other payments were, what the short-term and the long-term incentives were earned for the performance during that period. And that means on one single line, you can see for each executive what they've actually earned. Um, and as that comes more and more prevalent in the reporting of uh, annual you know, from companies, I think it's going to make it so much easier and clearer and so much more uh, sort of, uh, I think, visible to the public and to media and and impose more kind of restrictions in that sense. And then is it my understanding here again, because I'm jumping to conclusions on a quick read, are a higher number of chief executives being let go or fired or removed, whatever euphemism you want to use, um, than before? It seems like there's um, quite a number that are going, and I don't think it's so much that it's more than before, but typically CEOs don't tend to last at the top too often uh, or for too long. And what, what is in, in, you know, concerning in line with that is the separation payments. Um, and in some cases, it's called a resignation, and then there's other payments, and in other cases, it's called some sort of um, severance or other uh, you know, title. But at the end of the day, it's, you, know, you look at those numbers, and they add up to quite a significant uh, sort of package that that is given to these uh, perhaps non-performing executives or CEOs who are asked to leave. Um, And and that is a a real concern, I think. Um, You know, if somebody's performing really well and the company's performing well um, and they, you know, getting paid very handsomely, then I think that's, that's, um, you know, not what people really want to, you know, complain about. What they really complain about is when managers or executives or CEOs who haven't performed um, are asked to leave and then given a nice, healthy package to, to go. My thanks to you, Lawrence Grubb. The headline issues around uh, the Coquello Consulting um, annual report into executive pay, 2018 executive pay review, managing director of Coquello Consulting, Lawrence Grubb. The Money Show, personal finance. So Warren Ingram is sending uh, WhatsApp pictures from Italy this evening, and that's fine. He's entitled to have a little holiday. For three weeks, that's fine. We're, not, we're okay with that. Oh, look, there are the canals in Venice. 
Oh, we don't like him anymore. I think we should just um, get Maluski Gaba to block his re-entry to South Africa. Let's see how long he survives. Peter Carlitz, lovely to have you back on The Money Show, certified financial planner with Peter Carlitz Financial Services on the line to us from Cape Town. Um, I think everyone's feeling a bit gloomy about their money right now, Peter Carlitz. Markets are volatile, not just here, but all over the world. Um, and people are feeling as if they this, this investing thing is for the birds. Well, Bruce, we've, good evening to you and to your listeners. Bruce, nice to chat again. Well, if you look at the markets at the moment, uh, people have got access to so much information. So I was just looking, browsing this, this evening at the, uh, going through Google. And if you look at all the bubbles that have been predicted since the correction and the bounce back, if you'd moved your money every time there was a bubble predicted between 2010 and now, you would have lost an awful lot of money. Uh, you know, if you just take it in simplistic forms and talk about dollar returns, uh, you've had the highest point in the market on the 26th of January this year when the market grew between June 2017 and January by 18.2% in US dollars, the S&P 500. Now, what happens if you bailed out at a low point sometime between then and sat in cash if you were an overseas investor. Maybe in South Africa you would have been okay with cash because of the exchange rate or, or the interest rate rather, but certainly uh, short term maybe cash is a good idea. Certainly it was in South Africa last year, but you can't bail out of the market and sit and think you're safe because inflation will take care of it. And it's almost a pointless exercise looking back and saying could have, should have, would have because you didn't. Um, and exactly. so you need one needs a more reliable and solid strategy when it comes to investing so that you can mitigate the downsides of all of the negativity that does come from time to time and we're in one of those phases right now. Correct. And the problem, Bruce, is that people... When things are going well, the greed, the greed thing is sitting very prominent and everybody wants to stay in the market because they're scared to lose out. But those same people, when I, I have regular contact with my clients on this subject, especially now, and I say to you, what's your appetite for volatility? It's not risk. I mean, risk is the tulip bubble burst, bursting in Holland years ago. When I think it was the second crash in the markets in 1637 or thereabouts. But... Those are bubbles that burst, like the, 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 the tech bubble in sort of early 2000s. Those are, that's where you lose real capital. But if you're investing in a solid, well-diversified portfolio of shares and, and mutual funds, what you really face with is volatility. And if you set those things out and just be patient and not let fear replace greed when the market turns, generally you come out of it okay. But that's the trick. Because I speak to people now and I say, well, how much downside can you accept? How many months of negative returns will you feel comfortable with? And everybody says, no, it's fine until it happens. When it drops, <laughs> when it drops by 20%, yeah. those guys will phone me and say, wow, geez, you know, my market, my prop portfolio is by 20%. And okay, but you said you could handle it. So, so my advice to any, any, well, to all your listeners at the moment is to say, really have a good look at your portfolio right now expect that there will be a correction possibly in the next it could be in the next six months i mean trump and sorry sorry expect expect a correction in the next six months what have we just been going through well we're going through <laughs> a, hell of a lot of volatility <laughs> yeah i mean i can i can give you the stats but i don't want to bore you and we don't have the time but uh if you if we had a half an hour i could go through the, the extreme volatility we've had since the 26th of january you know, the, just to give you one, just one instance, from the high of 18% growth 
on the 26th of January, the market lost 10% by the 8th of February. Now, that's not a long time. It was the biggest one-day drop in history. Now, you sat through that in your market, and you survived it because then the market picked up again. So we've got extreme volatility, but as some wise man said years ago, the volatility in the markets is necessary to make money. If it just went up in a straight line, you wouldn't really be making money because experienced fund managers buy and sell and trade daily on the upticks and the downturns. So that's how they make their money for you. And you don't see that because unless you're watching your stock market daily, which I don't think is such a good idea, or looking at your mutual funds daily, which I also don't think is such a good idea, you're not even going to see that volatility. You're not going to see the the swings and roundabouts as that stockbrokers or the stockbroker or fund managers buying and selling shares on a daily basis. You're seeing your quarterly returns and they're either up or they're down. And if they're down, you get miserable. And if they're up, you say, cool, I can handle volatility. But my advice right now to all my clients, and I've discussed this with many of them, have a really good look at your mental condition and your ability to withstand 16 months of negative growth. 16 Months well, of negative growth. Is that a forecast or is that just a worst-case scenario? No, that's based on the last one, Bruce. Okay. The last correction we had. You know, I, I can remember clearly sitting there counting the months thinking, my God, when's this thing going to turn? And uh, when it did turn, in dollar terms, the first first few months, the, the portfolio shot about 27% in dollars. And everybody was happy. But, you know, they weren't happy 16 months earlier. And, of course, we've got a double whammy here because we've got the exchange rate to contend with as well. Now, here's a, a conundrum because people are taught and every personal finance book I've ever read says buy low, sell high. The trouble in times of volatility, what constitutes low and what constitutes high? Because the volatility itself disguises the sort of logic of, of cheap and expensive. Exactly. And that's where these value fund managers are starting to do really well now. If you look at the good value fund managers, they are really doing well. And that normally is an indication that we're at the end of the bull market. Because when the value, when the, when the growth, the momentum goes too well when the market turns, value fund managers underperform. Right now, the value fund managers are coming into their own, which is always an indication that we're in a very mature bull market. So things are now either going to flatten out or be like they are now, very volatile. And then after that, you normally have a, a dip, and the dip could last for, well, I don't know how long is a piece of string, but yeah. until things settle down. And uh, you and I have talked about this in the past, and, and it's really a question of the mindset. It's, it's not that if you bought good value stock, they're gonna, it's going to go up and down, and if you, last, if, it, if you keep it for long enough, you're going to get dividends, whether the markets are high or low, you're going to get a dividend, and sometimes the dividend's going to be more better than others. But you've got to examine your own mental state. Right now, I would urge all your listeners to have a really good look at their portfolio and say, can I withstand 20% correction for 16 months? And if they can't, then they've got to talk to their financial advisor and say, how do we adjust this thing to be a bit more conservative? If they can, they'll be fine because they'll still be getting dividends through that growth. Anyway, that's, yeah, that's I, I just, what I've seen in the last 27 years. No, but, but over, those, over those 27 years, and I've shown you some numbers that I've got of, of yes. the, the, the magic of compounding over time and how, exactly. and, and how markets, and, and if you simply ignored your investments altogether and you didn't get caught up in the minutia and you didn't get caught up in the detail and you just let the markets do what markets do, 
you are rewarded over long periods of time with great returns because you don't let your emotions get in the way. You just keep funneling money into this thing called the market and it's it, and it acts like uh, like the genie in, in Aladdin's lamp. Exactly. And you know, Bruce, they did some survey, some wise guy did a survey and he, and he worked out all these graphs. You know, these fund managers come up with all the science art stuff and the biggest losses that people have incurred haven't been by sitting through a collection, it's by bailing out of the market too soon because of fear of, of the capital loss. And there's some fancy graph in a bar chart that I saw a little while ago, a very interesting presentation by Credo stockbrokers. And it showed you the worst, the, the worst returns were actually the investors' returns over the period from the, 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 the big crash in 20, 1929. Because those guys, would have, after that, were so fearful that they kept switching out and switching back in, and they taught their children to do the same. And so people now, with all the information available, are doing it already. If you look at all the gurus that are telling you there's a bubble bursting, they started writing, and, and respected people. Um, I mean, this guy Schiller, that's got his, his measure. Schiller already was writing in 2012 that the U.S. stock market's in bubble territory. And that's six years ago. So people that listened to Schiller would have bailed out of the market and they would have sat in U.S. dollars cash at half a percent. And where would they be today? Uh, maybe, I don't know. It's, you, you can't listen to the gurus. You've got to look at your, you've got to talk to your stockbroker and you've got to talk to your financial advisor and you've got to get decent analytical feedback. But the biggest thing you've got to do is examine your own state of mind. Can you handle it? Because if you can handle it, you'll be fine. Peter Carlitz, great guidance. Thank you. Certified Financial Planner with Peter Carlitz Financial Services. The Money Show. Small business. Pablo Fatini is from Auric Business Accelerator in studio with us this evening. He's come back from America. He's over the jet lag. And last night we had a big fat chat. And last night, last week, we had a lovely big fat chat. And it was so awesome. Except we didn't really get to the point of the discussion, which was what lessons has Pablo brought back from America? Remember those days people used to go to America and they used to like bring, steal the ideas and bring them back and do them here and make lots of money. Um, well, nowadays the world is much smaller and much more interesting connected yet you can get some very valuable first-hand experience as Pablo has done um, with NetBank Business Accelerators and the team that he took over to the US to the GroCo conference and you can learn from those lessons and you can uh, and you can develop your own business based on some of those ideas um, are you are you still sort of basking in the glory of New Orleans and Chicago and New York briefly Bruce th- we, we've come back to hit the ground running. You see, the problem with a trip like this is when you have the number of meetings that one has, because on the RAND, you've got to make sure that you are squeezing every dollar in your favor, that you're going to earn it back three, threefold, fourfold, fivefold. Otherwise, these trips can be very, very expensive jaunts if you don't get a return on investment. So you squeeze in all the meetings. And the problem with all these meetings is that you come back and you have a whole lot of delivery to attend to. So it's, it's, no, there's been no time to bask. It's only been time to burn. Now, tell me about the two most interesting speakers that you saw at Groco. Well, I'll talk to, there were, so, so, okay, there was a big selection. There was a big selection. I'm going to go for, I'm going to go for the founder of Drybar, a lady by the name of Ali Webb. 
I have listened to a podcast of Ali Webb, the founder of Dry Bar. It's sort of like Sorbet's Dry Bar. It, it's, it's blow-drying hair and that sort of stuff. Yeah, but and that's all it is. That's all they do. It literally is It literally is structured as if it's a bar, a drinking bar, a boozing bar. So you have a bar counter, you go into the Dry Bar, and you get blow-dried for 28 to $32 or so, apparently. Would you get a big discount <laughs> if you went in <laughs> I know I would. And what fascinated, me about, what fascinated me by this is he has a very, very simple, simple, simple concept. And yet in a period of a couple of years, they're sitting with 168 stores. They are franchising at a rapid pace, opening up about six or seven stores a week at this point in time. And really all it does is blow dry your hair. But isn't that brilliant? Because it is absolutely You can incredible. be really good at that one thing. You can be really, really good at one thing. But here's the point. The point is they solve a problem. The whole idea emerged from the notion of solving a problem rather than performing a function or a service or selling a product. And in solving that problem, what they did is they went beyond solving the problem. They decided to solve the problem in a manner that created a remarkable, remarkable customer experience. And for reasons unknown to me, women in the United States of America love going to the dry bar. The way they received, the environment, the settings, the locations, the minutiae on detail around every single aspect, which then gets put into a system and effectively franchised so that the experience is repeated again and again from state to state, from region to region and location to location, is a true, true testament of how successful this very simple business is. I mean, one looks at the price of, of haircuts, and particularly in the sexist world in which we live, the price of women's haircuts, and there's a lot of complexity that goes into it. You have a great haircut on day one, and by the time you wake up on day two, the great haircut is still there, but it's not going to look the same unless you get a professional stylist to put it back to the way it was the day you had it cut. And hence, there is a great opportunity there for somebody to say, I can make you look as great as you did three days ago when you had that haircut. Come and get your hair blow dried for your big event, your launch, your just wanting to feel great. Or business meeting, in fact. So they located themselves in areas where the parking is free. The parking is directly outside the store. You hop off, you jump in. It takes about 20 to 30 minutes. It is, in American terms, very affordable, and you can get it done frequently and often. And then what's been so clever is once they started providing that service, they then started to ask themselves, how do we create a stickiness to this experience? How do we make it loyal? And the methods and means that they've come up with, Bruce, in order to create a membership benefit, pretty much like Audible has. You can go into Audible, which is an Amazon, the, the uh, audio books, and you can either buy a book as you wish or as you want to, or you can become a member either a monthly member or a double monthly member or a triple monthly member, you get a discounted price, but you debit every single month. And for that, you get preferential treatment and benefits. And the whole of the United States is working on that basis. It's literally impossible to not walk into a store and not buy. If you decide you're going to pop into the store to buy milk, as you buy the milk and you lift it up, literally a shelf speaker says to you, you have elected to buy the five liter milk. On that basis, you get two for one if you buy the donuts too. And as you pick up the two for one donuts, the next offer is there. And it literally becomes, for your basket, 
the value for a basket of deals when you walk out the store with a whole lot of things that you didn't intend to buy is remarkably good. They are brilliant at consumerism. Brilliant at it. And make you feel as if you have got the best deal ever. You're constantly winning. I didn't want these things, but I got them. And I'm so happy that I've got them, even though my wallet is empty and my basket is full and my kids are going to have a sugar rush for a week. I have now understood why the word winning, we're going to win, 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 win trump the election because that's what the americans do every time they step out into a store the dry bar story is really a great story um and if you can learn more about dry bar it is massively inspiring and the the simplicity and the elegance of it but the deep complexity of creating that simple elegance is what's the genius behind it absolutely from the dry bar we then i then sat in in a very very small session with two remarkable online retailers and I heard you not so long ago speaking about online retail. And somebody called in and said, we're growing at a fantastic rate. And you said, yes, but it's only 1% of all retail in South Africa. Fair point. These online retailers have got such a unique take on the experiences that they have over there. In that, Bruce, online retailing is accelerating at a remarkable pace in the U.S. You can literally walk into a store. This is how it's become now. Say, so I want that, 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 that. And in fact, ship it to me at no cost. The biggest issue that came up in online retailing, and it's something that I look forward to facing here one day, of a day, because that means that online retailing is working well, it'll reduce traffic, it'll make our lives a lot easier. It won't make products less expensive. The biggest issue that everyone focuses on is something called cuck. (laughs) We do that all the time. (laughs) Exactly. It's around us. And it stands for customer acquisition cost. And they've said the big landlords, the big landlords, The Liberties, the Growth Points, the Old Mutuals have been replaced by the new landlords, Google, Facebook, LinkedIn. And CUC, Customer Acquisition Cost, is the cost of buying keywords, posting adverts, serving adverts. It was fascinating to see. And what that has gone and done in these particular businesses is it has started to sophisticate the idea of customer retention and, more importantly, from customers, customer referrals because there's this battle to move beyond and past and around the big Googles, the big Facebooks, that once you've acquired a client, how do you hold on to them without having to spend on cuck? <laughs> and it's a really important lesson. Pablo Fatidis, Auric Business Accelerator. More with him in just a moment on the valuable insights in relation to things like scale and growth. I mean, these are the American business environment is clearly very different to ours, but we can learn from their experience. And then he's going to learn from Chicago as well without hopefully breaking into song. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual. Investing with Africa for Africa. Listing on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange on 26 June. Old Mutual. Do great things. Pablo Vitini's Auric Business Accelerator. Now, scale and growth and competition and funding. All of the stuff we talk about all of the time. But give me a different spin on it, if you would, because this is American. They spin things. But just give me a sense of how they look at it differently to the way we do. Look, scale and growth are two very, very different things from each other. And Bruce, the biggest, the biggest problem that business owners face is that they chase growth before they have scaled to deliver the growth. And the best way I can give you, the, the best analogy I can give you is this. If you have a five-year-old, a five-year-old can carry, let's say, five-kilogram weight. If you give that five-year-old a 30-kilogram weight, it's going to collapse under the weight of the 30-kilogram weight because it has not developed the muscle and bone density 
sufficiently in order to carry that weight. And the way that you build muscle is you've got to tear the muscle in order to build the muscle to create the density that you need to carry the 30 kilogram weight. This is where I've gone wrong all my life. It's <laughs> Tearing the muscle hurts. Go for it. It certainly does. And what was really interesting was listening to how as businesses grew and as they faced very aggressive and very rapid growth in a very short period of time, they had to break in order to rebuild the business a number of times over that period. In South Africa, you should be breaking to build the business depending on what sector you're in and depending on what stage you're in every three to five years. In the U.S., it's happening every 18, to three, 18 months to three years. Just the rate of pace is simply faster because of the size of the market. And it was great getting those insights and understanding how to get that done right. And is it a skills question too? I mean, is it you, you, you're going to have better teams around you, you're going to have stronger teams around you potentially as an entrepreneur in a, in a market where people are well-educated and well-geared. Um, is it because you've got better support that you can maybe flip faster? Or maybe if you don't, you just die. And so you just have to. Well, you, you've got... You've got there are a number of things that are needed to to build and break through the different stages of a business's growth. The first thing is you yourself need to recognize where you are in the cycle. You yourself need to ensure you have the skills to take you through that cycle. Very often, and we've seen it time and time again globally, some people are really, really good at starting businesses. They're terrible at managing the growth. And a smart entrepreneur is going to get a manager on board who has growth management skills, which is fundamentally different. Some people are really good at managing, but they're terrible at reinvention. And that's what happens if you have someone leading a company like Kodak. They didn't see the need mm. to reinvent, and so it goes. So you yourself need to have the skills. Secondly, you need to make sure you've got the right people doing the right thing at the right time. And as a business grows, it's like a tide rising. The boat of the business lifts with it. Some boats can stay with it and rise with it. Some boats sink underneath it. So you might have to make changes within your, let's call it staff set or skill set in itself. But most importantly, it's about what you do and the actions that you focus on through those different life stages. And that's where the great insights came. And competition is so interesting, too, because you'll talk to anybody in business in South Africa and they'll tell you how tough competition is. No, it's we not. Have, no, it's no, not. We no, it's have, not. We it's have not. no idea. It's not. You know, over there, when you, and we're talking about the small, medium business space. There are three or four principles that apply. You niche within a niche, within a niche, within a niche, within a niche, within a niche. Really, that's how narrow you have so to you're, be. So you're niched. <laughs> you are so niched. It's remarkable. You find a small little sliver, and that's what you focus on. Because like when, dry bar. You pick. That's a, it. That is such a great example of the niche within the niche within the niche within the niche. And look at the success of it in its own right. The next thing is you meet the requirements of regulation and legislation. Because the American government specializes in making money on non-compliance. You meet that requirement. Third thing is, if you're not wrapping tech in some shape or form into your business model, whether it be in lead generation and conversion, whether it be in the delivery of the service or the product, whatever it might be, whether it be foresight into how to service people more effectively or predictive maintenance or preventative maintenance or whatever it might be, if you're not wrapping tech in, Someone else is, and they're going to get past you and walk past you and run past you far quicker. Mm. Those three things are what keep these individuals awake at night. And the biggest problem that many South Africans will refer to is not the ideas or the environment or anything, the politics, the uncertainty, all of that stuff. People, I think, are quite resilient and can deal with because if they've got a great idea, they've got a great idea and they're willing to work on it. But it's this thing of funding. 
Yeah, funding is so different over here. It is remarkably different. The number of loops that you have to jump through, Bruce, over here to get funding in comparison to the environment over there, the moment you can demonstrate some level of traction, some level of traction, there are so many funding options that you can go to. And when I talk about options, I'm talking about organized networks of angels, organized networks of pre-angel, post-angel, almost angel, about to be angel, just having been angel. So within the angel phase of funding, there are already five or six well-organized groupings of people that you can access. The VC environment over there is also fundamentally different in that someone said to me, and I think this is very misguided, I need to get into VC. I need to get into VC. Why do you need to get into VC? Because I need VC to help me keep focused in my business. But the problem is that once you take on VC, you're chasing a very, very different type of business and a very, very different type of model. And quite honestly, I think in many ways, as well as it works, it's also equally broken. Okay. Now, you guys, you guys, that's you, by the way, you guys speak so highly of the hamburger-loving Trump-voting yanks that built their economy on debt. You should just have gone to China or something. <laughs> Are you going to bother? <laughs> no, I will go to China. That's built its entire economy based on government grants. Yeah. Exactly. Um, the American entrepreneurial spirit we can learn from. And if you don't want to learn from it, no, that's fine. You don't have to do it. Bruce, let me just put this idea across. Most of the people that I certainly meet with and engage with in the U.S., of the 31 that I meet with on a quarterly basis, 42% are American. The rest are the best coming out of Europe, Africa, China, and India. They come to America because the opportunities and the barriers to building a business, the friction, it's frictionless. It's not frictionless. It's tough. But there's no red tape. It's a lot easier to traverse yeah. the red tape there than it, almost anywhere else. Very briefly, why did you go to Chicago? Chicago, opposite end of the country to New Orleans. You couldn't have made the trip more awkward for yourself had you tried. You know, Chicago is, is, it is a distribution point. It, it is one of the transport nodes. It's the best place to have meetings. Everyone can get there cheaply. Everyone can move from there cheaply. And within, within the businesses, that the businesses I'm working with over here, Three are being bought outright by American companies. They're small deals. They're kind of eight to $15 million deals. So they're relatively small deals, but they're being bought outright over here because the view is, although, you know, Africa, where's Africa? Yes, okay, that's Africa. Africa's a basket case, but it cannot stay that way forever. It's going to grow at some point in time. We need to have a foot into that market. And that is an emerging view that we are certainly starting to feel. That's a fantastic view. I'm going to end it there. Jeff in Soweto wants to know why you've not been on Make Money Mondays, but you have been on Make Money Mondays. It was a long time ago. It was a long time ago. You can't, can't remember when. I can't remember when. Jeff, Pablo has been on Make Money Mondays probably two and a half years ago. Lefif, can you quickly search? Is it possible to search? Can you search through our podcast? I don't know. How do you search? I can't. Search me. Jeff, <laughs> We, we've got two minutes. Uh, we're going to have a quick look, and then if I can give you a date, then we can direct you to the date, and you can go through our podcast and see if you can find the Make Money Mondays with Pablo. But he's there. I swear he did. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual. Investing with Africa for Africa. Listing on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange on 26 June. Old Mutual. Do great things.
So, yeah, you haven't looked, have you? No, you haven't. I've tried to look, but I can't find it. Jeff, if you go through and you scroll through the hundreds of podcasts that we've got, and they're all up on where you get your podcasts from, then there is Pavlo's interview, the Make Money Mondays. It was wonderful. It was special. It was a very beautiful 20 minutes speaking about money. Not as scary and as challenging and as frightening and as like weird as Max Dupreer. Max Dupreer's Make Money Mondays goes down with Auntie Kate's. Kate Turkington's is one of my favorites because these are people not obsessed with money. It was so refreshing and so awesome. But Pablo's was good too. Go through the podcasts. I promise you it's there. That's it for the money show for this evening. Thank you for listening. Thanks for playing. And we'll do it all again tomorrow. Till then, good night.